Today's Bible reading is found in John chapter 21. So if you please uh, turn in your Bibles. If you have, if you grabbed a Bible from the back, you'll find it on page 907. And this is going to be, we're going to read the whole chapter of John 21. As you're turning there, um, I just want to say two quick things. And first one is that this takes place um, after Jesus has already died and been raised from the dead. And that will come out in the passage, but I want you to know that from the beginning. That is the context. And also, the writer of this book, John, says in just the the very final verse of the preceding chapter, in verse 31, these things... Um, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So let's keep that in mind as, as you follow along as I read, <clears throat> beginning with verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish For they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? 
This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. I want to congratulate everybody here for making it through the worst day of the year, December 26th. Ever since I was a kid, December 26th has always been the worst day of the year. And I think you can probably guess why. Because Christmas is such a enchanting, exhilarating time. Right. There's the lights and all the anticipation and the presents. I and mean, when I was a kid, I remember, you know, in May, I would start making out my Christmas list. I just, I just had this sense of anticipation. I would get the Toys R Us catalogs and I would cut out pictures of the toys I wanted, keep a little file of them, give that to my mom, cut out some coupons. You're like, man, you're a weird kid. Well, yeah, I was. But uh, that doesn't take away from the fact that, you know, there's just there's just something about December 25th, right? All of this anticipation. And December 25th rolls around. It's always a blast, right? There's always gifts and toys and there's wrapping paper everywhere. But I always remember as a kid, the older I got, there's, there's, there's a massive sense of disappointment when all of that's over. Right? The, the emotional high of Christmas goes away. There, there's a letdown. No more Christmas. Trees coming down. No more anticipation. Right? And worst of all, you are as far away from Christmas as you can possibly get. Right? December 26th is as far away from Christmas as you can be. You know, there's just something about even... You know, the gifts and the presents that you get, that they they lose all of their luster when they're sitting on the shelf at your house as opposed to when they were sitting on the shelf at Target. And they, just, they, they just, they seem to glow a little brighter when they were at the store than when they're sitting in your living room. I think what I was tapping into there as a child, what what my emotions were tapping into is probably what a lot of us feel around this time of year. Right? Heading into the new year, Christmas is over, we're kind of reflecting about the past and we're thinking about the future. Now, all, of, all of the promises and all of the anticipations, uh, all, all of the hopes for happiness and fulfillment and, and success that we had for ourselves never really seemed to measure up to our expectations for that year. Is that how some of you feel? I, I find it very easy to get to December 31, January 1, and the new year, not, not with a glowing sense of self-fulfillment, not with a glowing sense of accomplishment, but with a little bit of regret and a little bit of sadness and a little bit of disenchantment. Maybe a little shame, maybe guilt. Feel any of that recently? How are your New Year's resolutions doing from last year? 2016, it's amazing. It sounds like a science fiction year. 2016 has rolled on by. You know, and my life isn't brimming with gratefulness or, or with greatness. You know, truthfully, what I feel at the end of the year is... is in some sense, a sense of loss, right? All the ways that maybe I've failed as a husband or failed as an employee or failed as a parent or failed to mend relationships that were broken or failed to strengthen mediocre relationships. I just, just have a deep sense of your own mediocrity, all of the wasted time. Well, this passage is about something similar. This passage is about that feeling 
of sorts. Because this passage traces the end of a chapter in Peter's life that is similarly filled with regret and guilt and shame and disappointment and frustration. So let's look at this together. We're going to be looking at John 21, verse 15 to the end. If you're visiting uh, here at Heritage this morning, if, if you're someone who's exploring Christianity, you don't regularly attend, uh, this, this is what we do every morning or, or every, every Sunday. Right, we we uh, crack open the Bible, we read it, we talk about what it means, and then we apply it to our lives. That's, there's nothing unusual about what's happening right now. This is, this is what happens every Sunday around the world as Christians gather together to worship the risen Jesus Christ. So I have two points for this passage. I think they should be pretty easy to remember. Two points for you to hang some thoughts on as we look at John 21:15 to the end of the chapter. Number one, respond to God's personal, particular love. And number two, embrace God's personal, particular purposes. So let me say that again. Number one, respond to God's personal, particular love. And number two, embrace, rejoice in God's personal, particular purposes. So number one, respond to God's personal, particular love. As, start, as far as the story goes, there's nothing really too difficult to understand about this passage, right? It's, it's pretty clear. John, like the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, has walked us from Jesus Early days as a child from his ministry to his death on the cross to the grave. But now at the end of the gospel, like all the other gospels, he's telling us about the resurrection of Jesus. He's giving us historical testimony to the fact that Jesus story did not end on the cross. Jesus story didn't end in a grave. There's more to Jesus story. Jesus rose again from the dead. The defining characteristic of Christianity is that Jesus, in history, in time, in space, really, 2,000 years ago, if you had a video camera, you would see Jesus. He rose from the dead. And if if, if you're exploring Christianity and you're visiting, I I want you to understand that foremost. That's, That's the main thing that you really need to grasp this morning. That Christianity is not ultimately about something that you do. It's news. It's a message. We're telling you something that happened in history. It's about what God did for us. It's about what God did in history by sending his son, Jesus, who died on a cross and rose again from the dead so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And before chapter 21, John records two other times that Jesus appears to his disciples after he rose from the dead. And you can see on this occasion in verses 1 to 14, the disciples are out fishing at the Sea of Tiberias in Galilee, uh, which by God's grace I've been able to visit and is the most beautiful, amazing place on planet Earth. If you can, you should go. And the disciples, they're up all night. They're unable to catch any fish. And then Jesus shows up and miraculously provides fish for them. And then he's cooking breakfast and serving it to them over a fire. And verse 14 kind of summarizes this whole story. This is the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, you would expect, okay, you know, next scene, right? This is the third time that this happened. Maybe there's going to be a fourth time. Maybe something else is going to happen afterward. But that's not what happens. It doesn't, you know, star wipe and scene transition. Instead, what John does is he slows the story way down. Right. And these 14 verses were, were covering, you know, hours and hours and hours of time when they're out on the lake fishing. And what John's going to do in these next 15 or so verses is slow the story way down. Get out his zoom lens and focus on one very small conversation that happens between Jesus and Peter. Jesus points at the other disciples around the fire and says, verse 15, Simon, which is another name for Peter, do you love me more than these? I have a friend who loves to ask very awkward questions that are impossible to answer, right? So I'll be 
uh, you know, in a group of people, and we're just chatting, and he'll he'll kind of stop the conversation and say, you know, Sam, of of everybody here that that we're kind of talking to, who who would you say is your best friend? <laughs> or someone will be talking about something, you know, and he'll know that I really disagree with what this guy is saying. But you know, I don't want to get into a fight, and I don't, I don't want to get into it, and I'm just kind of sitting there politely. And he'll go out of his way to say. Sam, what do you think about what he just said? You know, at first glance, that, that, it kind of seems like that's what Jesus is doing to Peter. Uh, you know, this, this seems like a really awkward question. Peter, do you, do you love me more than these other disciples? Right? If, if Peter says yes, he comes across kind of looking a little pompous. And if he says no, he comes across kind of looking like a bad disciple. But this, this question really isn't as awkward as, as you might think it seems initially. It's, it's not meant to put Peter on the spot. The context behind this question and the entire series of questions comes from the fact that before Jesus was crucified, Peter told Jesus, Matthew 26, even if all the disciples desert you, I will never fall away. Right? Or earlier in John, John 13, 37, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. But what happens is the opposite, right? Peter's cowering in front of schoolgirls. No, I don't know this man. He, he, he doesn't just abandon Jesus like the other disciples. He's the worst offender among them because he denies Jesus. He denies him three times. And that's why Jesus comes to Peter and asks if he loves him more than the other disciples. What he's doing is he's, he's probing Peter's repentance. He's probing Peter's newfound humility. And Peter understands this. And that's why he doesn't respond with the cocky attitude that he had before. He just looks at Jesus and he says, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. But then Jesus asks him the same question. Peter gives him the same answer. And then Jesus asks him a third time. And Peter gives him the same answer. But what does the Bible say? This time he's grieved. Well, why? Be- because he knows what Jesus is doing. He understands what Jesus is doing with these questions. Three times Peter denied Jesus. And now Jesus is making Peter reaffirm his love for him three times in response. So what does all this mean? Why is Jesus doing this? And more, why, why is John telling us about this, right? Why, why, did he get, why did he get out his zoom lens? Why did he get out the microscope to focus on this conversation? And I would submit to you that the reason is because John wants you to know something, not primarily about Peter, but about the character of Jesus. See, because of the questions and kind of the general flow of this story, we can initially think it's a story about whether Peter loves Jesus. But in reality, it's a story about how much Jesus loves Peter. In moving Peter to express his love, Jesus is forgiving Peter. Jesus is restoring Peter. Jesus is redeeming Peter. He's he's putting his hand out to the man who just denied him and he's welcoming him back into the fold. He's bringing him back as a disciple. See, we need this scene for Peter. We, we need to know what happens to him. Earlier in the Gospel of John, you know, one of the last things that we hear from Peter is him denying Jesus. But what, what's coming out of his mouth the last time we interact with Peter are words of denial. Jesus is on his way to torture and death. And really, even seeing, don't find Peter as the one initiating conversation. There's no Peter here repented. But picture here isn't Peter pulling at the feet of Jesus' hero and the Jesus begrudgingly saying, fine, fine, oh, I forgive you, fine. John paints a very different portrait. The initiative is all from Jesus. He's here, he starts a conversation, he asks questions, he restores Peter, he's going to get Peter. He's going after him to forgive him, brothers and sisters. This is Christianity. This is the heart of it. Jesus from and restore people who turned their back on him and denied him. The gospel isn't for good people. It's for people who come to their year, throw their hands up and say, fail again. The reason we gather every Sunday morning is to celebrate the gospel. 
Because it's the story of all the faults and all the failures of people and then rises again from the dead and doesn't proclaim. Now, look what I did for you. Get your act together. But who rises again from the dead and looks at his people and says, I love you. I, I still love you. I'll always love you. Even when you deny me, I'll love you. Come to me. Let me restore you. Okay, so my application is not very profound, but it's also the most profound thing in the universe. Here it is. Believe. Believe. Oh, faulty, regretful, disappointed, stumbling Christian, that the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit love you. Not with a fickle loved based on how good of a Christian you are, but with what the Jesus Storybook Bible calls a never-ending, never-giving-up, unstopping, always-and-forever love. So let's just, let's just kind of camp out here for a moment. Let's stop and reflect on this point. Because we can talk about the love of God so often, right? I mean, we talk about it every Sunday. It, it, and, and, so, and it's because of that, sometimes it can be hard to kind of sink your teeth into, to grasp, to hold on to. It, it, it can get diluted in our minds of any sort of real significant, significance. You know, per, perhaps one way that, that we can talk about this, which, which can reframe it a little bit, is to remember that God not only loves you, but that he likes you. Okay, and I hope you see what I'm getting at with that little turn of phrase. Here's what I mean. Sometimes, I know I as a Christian can be tempted to think that the gospel is a way of trapping God into doing something that he really doesn't want to do. Right? All right. Repent of my sins. Believe in Jesus. Renounce my righteousness. I've got this thing all, all theologically figured out. There. Now God has to save me. Right, and God's kind of up in heaven going, all right, I'll save you. But if you don't do your devotions every day. Right, we think that God is almost kind of begrudgingly loving us. Like, uh, you know, some father who provides for his rebellious teenage sons, but, you know, really would rather not be around them. But brothers and sisters, that's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. God sent, God, the Father, sent his son, Jesus, to get you by the Spirit. Every member of the Trinity at work and active inseparably to accomplish bringing us to forgiveness. God is not begrudgingly loving us because we're such bad disciples. You notice... Jesus is pursuing Peter at this moment, and he's reaching out to Peter at this moment, not because Peter is the best disciple at this moment, but because because Peter is probably the worst disciple at this moment. In in fact, I, I think it's so interesting that when you read through all of the resurrection stories in the Gospel of John, Jesus talks to the disciples all the time, but I think in John, there's only two times where Jesus speaks to a specific disciple where Jesus has a personal conversation with one of his disciples. And that's with Thomas and Peter, the one who doubted him and the one who denied him. And in each of those cases, in each instance, Jesus is is crafting a very specific, careful, pastoral, particular response to those specific disciples, right? Doubting Thomas, put your hands right here. Denying Peter, you know, say that you love me. Let's restore you. So, brothers and sisters, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you, you, singular, you. With a particular redeeming, restoring love that, like Peter here, can give you the grace to overcome your particular patterns of sin and weakness. But what you have to recognize is that sometimes that love is really painful. Peter receives the love of Jesus and it grieves him. Why? Because it might remind you of all of the sin in your past. It might unearth all of your failure. It might take away from you things that you really hold dear. 
They might ask of you more than you think that you have to give. But when Jesus does this type of heart work on you, when Jesus truly brings you back to himself and changes you by forgiving you and restoring you in the way that he does with Peter, you wouldn't have it any other way. So brothers and sisters, in the pain and in the sorrow of whatever your situation might be, Peter's grief is speaking out to you. And what it's saying is that God has not turned his back on you. That that pain shouldn't be interpreted as some sort of evidence that, that God is, is distant, that God doesn't care. John is showing us that those griefs are evidence that Jesus is in love pursuing us and restoring us with a never-ending, never-giving-up, unstopping, always-and-forever love. Now, what if you don't identify as a Christian? What if, what if you're exploring Christianity? Well, I just... I just got to ask you, you know, what, what are you doing at the end of the year? What are you doing with disappointment? What are you doing with regret? What are you doing with guilt? Hiding it? Trying to cover it up? Ignoring it? How's that working out for you? What God wants of you right now is not new resolutions. Turn over a new leaf. Change your life. Do something different. New set of rules. Jesus, and this, this is why we read the Bible and explain it, because Jesus in this passage is putting his hand out to you. And he's saying, come to me. He's inviting you to the type of love I've just described. He's inviting you to have forgiveness of sins by turning to Jesus and believing what the Bible says about him. Now, just briefly, let's... Uh, Let's ask, what, what might this say to us as a church, right? What might this say to Heritage Baptist Church as a whole body, as a congregation? Well, brothers and sisters, this is the type of love that Heritage Baptist Church ought to manifest to one another. That if you're going to be a Christ-like church, that you should be marked by this type of generous, compassionate, forgiving, restorative love that seeks out the very people who've offended you, that seeks out the very people who frustrated you, that seeks out the very people who, you know, get under your skin and have said things that you don't like. Why? Because the church is built on that type of love. Because you're here. You're here because of that type of love. That's the love that Jesus showed to us. That's the type of love on which the church is founded. So that's point number one. Respond to God's personal, particular love. Point number two. Embrace God's personal, particular purposes. The rest of this episode, the story, really revolves around a very simple two-word command that Jesus gives to Peter after he has restored Peter. Follow me. That command is so all-encompassing it's a little frightening. It seems restrictive. It's, you know, it kind of makes you a little uneasy. And what Jesus is saying to Peter is that if, if, if you're going to come to me and, and be restored by me and, and receive forgiveness, you don't just come to these gifts. You come to me. I get ownership, Jesus says. He gets in the driver's seat. He determines what happens. In a song that my son sings in the car on a CD that we have, you are not the boss. Ted's not the boss. Jonathan's not the boss. Sam isn't the boss. Jesus is the boss. That's what Jesus is saying. But one of the things that's so amazing about this command is that, it, you know, it really seems kind of frightening. It really seems a little restrictive you know, it seems like one of the harsher commands in the Bible. But what I want you to see is in the context of this story, this is actually one of the most comforting and one of the most liberating things that Jesus could have told Peter. John unpacks the meaning of this command by two conversations that take place around it. Okay, so there's a conversation at the front end of the command, and then there's a conversation 
at the back end of the command, after the command is given. And, and both of these conversations kind of unravel the meaning of this command. And, and I think show us the, the type of effect that this command is meant to have in our life. So look at verse 18. Jesus restores Peter. And then John records this really one-of-a-kind moment where Jesus tells Peter something that he's going to have to live with for the rest of his life. He tells Peter how he's going to die. And it's not a pretty picture. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now that seems maybe a little cryptic, but it's almost universally acknowledged that what Jesus is describing here is that Peter's life is going to end on a cross. Peter is going to be crucified. Peter is going to be hung and he's going to be tortured. And it's in that context, Jesus says, Peter, follow me. Now, do you hear a little more comfort in those words? Not sternly, Peter, go over there, do well, I'll be watching, I'll be evaluating from here. But Peter, you're going to die. You're going to suffer. It's going to hurt. You're going to be crucified. But guess what? I've already been crucified. I've already been through this. And look at me. I came out the other side. I've conquered death. I've already gone through all of this suffering. And now I have life to give. So when you face that, keep your eyes on me. Follow me. Jesus is looking at Peter and he's saying, you're not in control of this situation, but I am. Follow me. John inserts this little comment after he tells Peter that he's going to die on a cross. Verse 19, he says, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Now That's a little shocking. Peter's agony will display to the world the greatness of God. Peter, when they strip you down and they make fun of you and you play the fool for everyone to see, when you're naked in public and they put, hand, they put nails in your hands and in your feet and everybody comes by and spits on you and mocks you, when the mob lynches you, Peter, God is going to look amazing. Now, brothers and sisters, what John is saying is that our suffering, the, the particular specific problems and pains that the Lord sends into our life, when lived out and experienced in obedience to Jesus, make God look great to the world. Now, this you know, upon initial reflection, it may seem like it doesn't make any sense, but actually intuitively, all of us know this. Here's what I mean. Right? Imagine a young man comes and he joins Heritage, but you, you almost never see him because he's always working. Right? So in the morning, he's, uh, he's mowing lawns and he's doing construction. And then in the afternoon, he's a butcher at the grocery store. And then in the evening, he's, he's a janitor somewhere. And then he's taking night classes on top of that. And you catch him in one of these moments and you say, man, what are you doing? You don't, like, you don't need all these jobs. You got plenty of money. You don't, you don't have to live like this. And he says, well, I'm, I'm trying to make extra money. Because I have this amazing girlfriend back home and, and, and we don't have any money for a ring or a wedding. And so I'm, I'm trying to get money for a ring and I'm trying to save up money for a wedding so that I can marry her. Now, what's your response when you look at this guy who has kind of inflicted upon himself all of this pain in order to achieve this goal of of marrying this girl? What what naturally comes out of your mouth? Wow, she must really be what worth it. Yeah, she's really worth it. A willingness to suffer for something says something about the value and the beauty and the worth of whatever that something is. So John says, Peter, when you die as a follower of Jesus, your suffering makes Jesus look like he is worth it. 
Now, what application might this have to us? Because, you know, it's difficult to see any sort of meaningful connection between this prophecy about Peter's life and his death and my life, right? Which is, which is fair. Most of us are not going to face this type of feral, violent persecution. Though some of you might. Well, sure, Peter's death glorifies God, but, you know, that, that's so different from the suffering in my life. I mean, it's one thing for a missionary, you know, in the middle of his ministry to be persecuted, but, you know, God doesn't get any glory out of my seven years of chronic back pain or from the emotional hurt of wayward children who don't speak to me or from this endless cycle of financial trouble that I can never dig myself out of from sick children in the hospital from the loss of a child Peter's suffering makes sense what does that have to do with my chronic frustration of doing data entry in a job that I hate 40 hours a week but brothers and sisters that that misses the bigger principle at, at play here Because what Jesus is saying is that all suffering lived out in obedience to Jesus, all suffering experienced as we follow Jesus is suffering that puts God on display in our lives. Jesus is looking at you and in your chronic ailments and frustrations and pain. And he's saying in that follow me. In those frustrations, in that pain, in that situation, be faithful to me in your suffering. This suffering has a purpose in it, and it comes with a promise. It comes with the promise of resurrection. And brothers and sisters, we need to take this to heart in so many areas of our lives. And remember that we show God's glory to the world, not with dramatic displays and with bells and whistles and with things that seem glorious to us. God's glory is made known in the world in the day-to-day faithfulness of Christians who carry out their lives, bearing the burdens of discipleship and the pain that comes with loving your brothers and sisters in this congregation. So brothers and sisters, we need to remind ourselves That in suffering, whether it's large suffering or whether it's small suffering, that God's ultimate purpose in that is not that we train ourselves to develop the habit habit of just constantly waiting for the next season of life. I find myself stuck in that habit a lot. But when I just get to the next season of life, things will be better. God has a purpose in all of this. God is making a name for himself among us and is giving us a particular pattern of pain that will show to the world that he is worth it. But then there's another conversation that takes place after this command. Also kind of unravels the meaning of this. Look at verse 20. Peter's response to Jesus is the exact opposite of what it should be. Okay? End of verse 19. Jesus says, follow me. What are the very next words? Peter turned. (laughs) I love that. Follow me, Peter. Peter's like, what about this guy? Now, listen, this, it gets a little complicated right here. All right. So kind of put your theological ears on because Jesus' response to Peter is pretty technical. Okay. So we're going to have to do some work here. Jesus looks at Peter and he basically says, Peter, none of your business. All right. That's that's Jesus' technical response to Peter. Peter, none of your business. If it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, the Lord of history, gives one disciple long life, And lets him die of natural causes. And lets him write one quarter of the New Testament. And the other one he cuts down in the middle of his ministry and nails to a cross. The command is the same. Follow me. When I was preparing this sermon, I was uh, 
during that week. I was, I was online. I was looking at some articles. And I got interested in this series of articles entitled How I Work, an interview with so-and-so, where they interview different people. And I got interested in these because uh, all of these interviews are with people who have roughly the same job description that I do. They're all kind of editors and researchers and, and things like that in, in different organizations. So I started reading these articles, one in particular. And I am reading this article that's designed to encourage me and help me follow Jesus more efficiently. And I'm getting through it and just getting more and more and more and more depressed. Right? There's nothing like reading about all of the successes of other people to make you feel all of your own inadequacies. Right? Everybody gets up at four in the morning and they have these two-hour devotionals. And then they go on a five-mile jog. And then they, they come home and they homeschool their kids. And they're faithful in family worship every day. And then before they go to bed, they all read 17 books. <laughs> and I'm reading this stuff thinking, I had a devotional this week. And I, I tried to teach my kids a couple of Bible stories you know, in, the, in a, the chaos of our one failed family worship. And I read a chapter of something before bed, but I fell asleep. I don't even remember. Thankfully, I was preparing the sermon. Open up this passage. And you hear these incredibly liberating, not restrictive, liberating words. Follow me. Follow me, Sam. Follow me. Don't judge your spiritual success or your lack of spiritual spiritual success based on the lives of other people. You follow me. So, brothers and sisters, let this command have in you the effect that Jesus wanted it to have in Peter. Let it liberate you from the self-pity or from the pride that comes with comparison And motivate you to fix your eyes on the only thing that matters, following Jesus. Because there's a million ways that we can get stuck in the cycle of constantly comparing ourselves to one another, right? Just coming out of the Christmas season, so maybe, you know, you're a mom of young children. You went on Facebook this week and you saw that everybody, you know, took their family to church and... They all wore matching sweaters and they were all in their nice Christmas gear and everybody looked so happy and there's all these great little pictures of the family. And you're like, oh, I can barely get my kids to church with clothes on. Right? Or, or maybe you see that guy who reads everything and he writes like 50 blog articles a week and he's like this pastoral sage that everybody wants counsel from and you want to be like that and you sit down to write a 15-minute devotional for your men's Bible study and you finish it and you're like, I don't even want to read this. Right? Or you see the guy who walks into Starbucks And he's like casually striking up all these gospel conversations with people. And soon he's holding court with like a dozen guys. And they're all coming up to him saying, tell me the gospel. Tell me why why I'm a sinner. And he brings like 20 guys with him to church every Sunday. And all of them are getting saved. You know, the last time you shared the gospel with somebody at work, you almost got fired. Or more generally, no one has it as hard as me. No one has my set of problems. No one has my pains and my difficulties. So I deserve, I'm entitled to, I need this, I need that. And Jesus is saying in this command, look, I didn't give you their life. I didn't give you their gifts. I, in my inscrutable and infinite wisdom and sovereignty, put you in this situation with your life and your gifts and your family And your job in this moment so that in all of those particularities, you follow me. Did you move to Heritage? Because, you know, you thought be here three years, then launch out and do something great. And I'm going to, you know, do this this thing that I've always wanted to do. And now you're stuck pushing insurance claims at a desk while all your friends go out and live the dream that you had for yourself. And Jesus says, don't look at them. Don't don't evaluate yourself by them. You follow me. In the unmatched wisdom of God, 
Jesus has given you a particular set of circumstances with a particular family and particular friends in this particular time. And no one in the history of redemption has lived your life. No one in the history of redemption has your exact story, which means Jesus wants you in a unique and particular way to glorify him as you obey this command. Follow me. Brothers and sisters, how might this apply to us as a as a as a congregation? How might this apply to us corporately? Well, my hope would be for Heritage Baptist Church is that if if the Lord sent a great harvest of people. Right? If if the Lord were to, to save thousands of people, right, in true revival fell on Owensboro, and even some of our own ministries were were involved in that and, and uh you know you're seeing all of this fruit that that heritage would would lead out in celebrating and rejoicing and praising God even when all those people joined other churches. See, churches like people can get stuck in the comparison game too. But brothers and sisters, in the Lord's providence, this church might be a John with a hundred years of life and incredible influence and, and, uh, you know, writing a quarter of the New Testament. And another might be a Peter full of suffering and short-lived and getting cut off in the middle of its ministry. But one isn't better than the other. What is it greater in the Lord's eyes than the other? What ultimately matters is this. You follow me. You know, I, I don't like referencing myself in a sermon, but, you know, this is, this is a unique sermon, and so I'm going to do something unique. This, this is a unique time in the life of heritage. Right? You guys are looking for a new lead pastor. Maybe it'll be me, maybe it won't. But I know that in a lot of, I've, I've sat in a lot of candidating sermons, and, and the way they typically run is this way. I'm, I'm supposed to say how if I were to come, things, gonna, things are going to be great, and God's going to do something amazing, and we're going to triple in size, and you know, everything is just going to be fantastic, and there's going to be bells and whistles everywhere. And you know, brothers and sisters, if I were to come or someone else were to come, the church may triple in size. Or it may stay exactly the same. Or it may shrink to 30 people. And all of those things are fine. In the Lord's providence, all of those things are fine if we are following Jesus. So brothers and sisters, in our personal lives, in our churches, we can't engineer the type of life that we want. We can't engineer the, the type of growth or influence or prestige that we, we, we may want this church to have. No amount of cleverness or leadership or anything else is going to be able to substitute for a genuine work of the Spirit. But what stays the same, whether, we beca- whether heritage becomes the, you know, the center of the evangelical world, or, or whether it shrinks to 30 people and is a little small mom-and-pop church down the street, what stays the same is this command. You follow me. Because it's the Christmas season, a lot of people uh, visit church around the Christmas season, you know, who might, who might uh, not, uh, not otherwise come. You know, and if that's you, I, I just want to talk to you for a moment. Number one, I just want to say, I'm really glad that you're here. If you only come to church once a year, that's great. I'm glad you're here today. And what I want to just give to you, if, if you're not a Christian, if you don't identify with Jesus, my hope is that you would just in the next couple of moments ask yourself the question, who talks like this? I'm talking about Jesus. Who, who talks like this? Who acts like this? The greatest commendation I can give to you of Christianity is, is Jesus himself. Jesus forgives sins in a way that makes the forgiven grieve over their failures. Jesus comforts people with the most restrictive commands imaginable. He encourages his people to pursue a life of glory by walking into personal suffering. 
He instructs us not to compare ourselves with others, not by having us focus on ourselves, but by having us focus on him. Who talks like this? You know, C.S. Lewis, who, who lived about a century ago, he once issued this challenge. And I want to encourage you to consider it. Either Jesus is, is a liar and he has no idea what he's talking about. He's the biggest phony and he's the most immoral person in all of history, which even from what you've heard today, I don't think you can buy into. Or he's crazy, he claimed to be God and he's nuts. Or he is who he says he is. He's the Lord of all creation who came to forgive sinners. So who do you think he is? You need to settle that. Who do you think he is? John says at the end of this book, as Justin read earlier, that everything he wrote in this book, this, this book that we're reading, was so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and so that believing we may have life in him. And, and that's what I hope you do with what you've heard. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, that's the main application. Believe in Jesus. This person, the one who seeks you out with a personal, particular, never-ending, never-giving-up, unstopping, always-and-forever love. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for letting us listen into this story and this conversation between Jesus and Peter. Lord, we pray that you would use these words to change our hearts to be more like Jesus, to focus less on ourselves and to, to focus less on comparing ourselves with others and to walk in faithfulness to you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.